And now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, continuing our study in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Hear God's word. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for every word of your word. We thank you that you address in your word all areas of life. And we pray that as we study this section today, that you would give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I would be able to articulate these things well, that we would have no distraction and no error, but that we would uh, be able to hear you speaking by your Holy Spirit through your word to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, Americans hate sex. Hollywood hates it. The TV networks hate it. The women's magazines in the checkout line hate it. Sports Illustrated and GQ hate it. The internet hates it. The music industry hates it. HBO really hates it. How can you say that we hate it when it's all we talk about? It's all we hear about. It seems like we can't talk about or think about anything else as a culture. We can't not talk about it. How can you say we hate it? Well, it's very clear. It's very simple. Because what we want and what we're obsessed about is not the blessed union of a married man and a married woman cleaving together in the bonds of the marriage covenant. No, we're not fixated on what God designed. We love fornication. We love adultery. We love lust. We love treating other people's bodies like objects that exist for our own satisfaction. We love sinning against each other and we love abusing each other. That's what our generation loves. Pagans want to appear as if they're so skilled at seduction and they're, so, they're such experts in every way. They're so experienced, how experienced they are. But in all this constant talk about it, this, this emphasis as if there's nothing else to life is an attempt to convince everyone and themselves that they really are happy and they really are fulfilled living these carefree, guilt-free lives, hopping from bed to bed. Romans 1 tells us, though, that they're dishonoring their bodies. They're exchanging the truth for a lie. They have departed from God's designed use of the body. Why do I say that we hate it? It's because we don't abuse things that we love. And we abuse sex as a culture. Therefore, we hate it. We hate it. There's this kind of person who wants to let everyone know how much they love opera or jazz or wine there's a kind of person who wants to appear as if they love these things, but they don't really love them. They just want to be the kind of person who really loves opera. It's, it's part of their self-image fantasy. 
sophisticated people love opera, so I want to be sophisticated or at least have people think I'm sophisticated, so I'm going to go to the opera and sit through it, even though I would rather be anywhere else in the world right now. And I'll make a big deal about how much I like it. And, well, that's sort of our culture's very immature, very adolescent approach, that it's, we want to appear that we've got this, this down and we've got this uh, figured out when we're so far from the truth. There's, a, there's another illustration that comes to mind. Every time I go to a baseball game, uh, there's a guy with a $40 hat and a $200 jersey who comes in in the third inning and sits there and plays on his phone the whole time that the game is going on. He gets up and gets down 20 times during the game and he leaves by the seventh inning. He couldn't tell you who the, the third baseman is on the team whose jersey he's wearing. He couldn't tell you his name, but he wants to take pictures and show everybody that he's at the game. But, but he, doesn't, he doesn't care about baseball. You see, that's, that's our cultures and that's our generation's attitude toward sex. We want to look as if we've got this all figured out, but in reality, we couldn't be further from the truth. This is how our our society treats it. All this posturing without any substance. And if I could take that last image a little bit further, especially in the way that we hate sticking around for the ninth inning. At the end of the game, one of the chief results of our marital physical unions, one of the chief results is babies. God designed us in such a way that babies are very often the result of sex. But we want to completely separate the two subjects and act like one has nothing to do with the other. Because if you start talking about babies, well, then you're talking about responsibility. You're talking about covenant. You're talking about commitments between biological men and biological women. We've done everything we can as a generation and as a culture to pull sex out of the, context, out of the context of reproduction and babies. Because there's, a, there's, a, there's an agenda behind this. Satan wants us fruitless. Satan wants us neutered. And, and, and for us to believe that if by some accident, oh my goodness, there's a pregnancy. How did that happen? Oh, I don't know. Well, well, you can just kill the baby. I mean, oh, come on. You're not going to raise this child, right? You're not going to give birth to this child. Just kill, just kill the baby. That's your option because these two things don't belong in the same conversation. Or better yet, Satan has another step in his strategy. How about, how about he tempts us into same-sex relationships, which are fruitless? Or even better, still maybe accept the lie that we can change our sex and completely destroy any possibility of having children. You see, it, it, it's this uh, ramping up and this, this heating up of the satanic agenda that we're seeing in, in play in our day. And all of this, all of this is a pursuit of sexual gratification that moves further and further and further away from fruitfulness. Now, I'm going to hit pause for just a second and say that um, I'm not saying, and, and I often, you know, it's very easy to be misunderstood in talking about fruitfulness and its connection to the marital cleaving to each other. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that you know, infertility is somehow a, you know, I'm, I can't have children and, or, or I've, I've struggled to, we've struggled to get pregnant. There's, 
no, no, no uh, judgment being made there about the fact that, in fact, God opens and closes the womb. We understand that and we accept that God opens and closes the womb. But ordinarily, and this is what I'm saying, ordinarily, God designed our cleaving to each other to produce babies. But as a culture, we hate babies. Therefore, we really hate the natural use of women because we hate women and we hate children and we despise pregnancy. So we hate sex as God designed it. The pagan fascination with sex is a joke. It's a bad parody. And we need to recognize that pagans are sex haters and woman haters and baby haters. But instead, what we do as Christians and what the church has done since the beginning of the sexual revolution is adopt and import all of their attitudes. We, we tease around the edges, titillated and aroused by their perversions, this twisting of God's creation and his good design. We accept their definitions. We import their lexicon completely. We use their terminology and we love all the ugliness that they have worked to normalize. Just think of this. Think about this. We are aroused by and enjoy and get excited by things that God hates. He hates these things. He's judged them and we enjoy them. Um, God doesn't hate sex. However, he hates idolatry. So this world of unbelief that has turned God's design into something ugly and twisted is ever present in our day. And in response, we don't adopt their wicked practices and definitions, but neither do we pretend that God's design is naughty or something to be ashamed of. Just because they've ruined it for themselves doesn't mean that the church responds by being sticks in the mud. We're not, we're not uptight. You know, we're not like you know, librarians or whatever image you have in your mind. I'm sure there are some fine Christian librarians. I don't know what that means. But you know the image that, that I, I'm projecting. We, we do the opposite of being sticks in the mud. You see, when drunkards misuse wine, we don't respond by abstaining from wine thinking, well, I'm not going to drink any wine today. That'll show them. That'll, that'll, that'll cure alcoholism. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. No, how do we respond? We use wine properly and we show the world what it looks like when you use a good thing that God gives us and enjoy his good gifts without being enslaved to the created thing or perverting it or distorting it. So in the same way, God's design of physical intimacy in marriage is not naughty. It's not wicked. A husband and a wife have nothing to be ashamed of. We must determine as Christians that we will not accept the world's definitions or perversions. We love our creator by loving our spouses, not by abstaining from loving them. In fact, as Paul points out in this section, withholding your body, withholding your affection from your spouse is defrauding your spouse. It's cheating them and it's setting them up for failure. And so this is uh, the, the subject that we come to today. And by the way, you know, when I mapped out the year, I didn't say, okay, this Sunday in July, this is what I'm going to talk about. This is what happens when you preach and work through every verse of the Bible. You come across all kinds of topics. So a couple of year, weeks ago, we dealt with um, you know, contracts between Christians, something I never thought we'd preach about. But it's there in the Bible, and we talked about it, and now, now we talk about our duty to each other as husbands and wives to cleave to each other. Last week, we read Paul's correction. By the way, I'm trying to uh, 
cut through the nervousness. <laughs> I don't know if I'm doing a good job of that, but don't, uh, as I said in my email a couple of weeks ago, I'm doing the best job I can to communicate these things, understanding we have a room full of little people and little ears, and we want them in worship uh, at the same time. Uh, we don't do any favors to each other if we pretend like there are parts of God's Word that are just off-limits. We preach and teach every word. So um, last week, Paul's correction was addressed to Corinthian men who were going to prostitutes. And, and evidently, some of these men in the church had gotten the idea that since we're people of the Spirit, then the body doesn't matter anymore. And now we have the liberty to do whatever we want to with our bodies. And Paul disabused them of that notion. He taught them that Jesus died to save us, both our bodies and our souls, and that our bodies belong to Jesus as well. It, what you do with your body matters. And so that's how he ended uh, chapter 6. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now he turns and he uh, goes to a few questions that they've asked him on the subject of marriage. And it sounds like some of the Corinthians had taken this idea that the body doesn't matter in the opposite direction. They didn't go to the temple prostitutes with their bodies. They were convinced in the opposite direction that they should live as ascetics, that they should deny the body, deny the flesh any pleasure whatsoever, and not bother with this business of physical intimacy. Last week, I, I talked about the sexual brokenness and the nightmare existence we create when we jettison God's order in society. Well, for the Greeks coming into the church, they were coming as refugees of all this sexual confusion and chaos coming into the church. And just imagine these Greeks who lived in this pagan culture, this purely pagan culture, all of the scars and the pain that they had collected over the years as heathens abusing their bodies, abusing the bodies of others. So much confusion, so much, so much hurt and so much uh, uh, just darkness. And so they thought maybe as Christians, the way to counter all of this and the way to work against it was celibacy. Just put all physical contact behind you. And even if you're married, it's best just to move into separate bedrooms. At least, you know, be Fred and Wilma, like we said last week, or Lucy and uh, uh, Ricky. You know, get separate twin beds or, or get separate rooms. And, and if you aren't married, don't get married. Don't even think about touching a woman. That's the only way to live as a Christian. And that's how they were processing this and thinking about it. Now, at the same time, there would have been Jewish members of this church who would have grown up believing that marriage was not just a good thing, but that marriage was compulsory. The, the Jewish concept in the first century and for centuries before was that the only way to please God was to be married because that's the only way to be fruitful and multiply. In fact, if you were a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, you had to be married. They would have viewed singleness as disobedience. So now we have this division in this church uh, over this question. Is it lawful to marry? Is it okay to remain single? Can you be holy and be single? Must you get married? Which some are saying. And, and if married, is it okay to remain celibate in marriage? Or must you, um, must you not remain celibate? These are the questions that Paul, Paul is dealing with. So he proceeds to answer the question in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. To touch a woman is a Jewish euphemism for marriage and the physical union within marriage. So in this context, touching a woman, you know, it's not talking about hugging your mom. 
It's not talking about offering your hand to help a lady out of a carriage. That's not what we're talking about. This phrase is a Jewish phrase referring to cleaving to your wife, the physical union between you and your wife. Now, this is a tough verse to interpret, and there are at least two possible ways to read this statement, and I'm going to give you both and, um, and, and see what you think. Some argue that Paul is quoting their letter when he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So it goes this way. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, colon, quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, end quote, that what he's doing is he's quoting their letter to, to him. This is the question you ask me. Is it good or is it not for a man to touch a woman? And one of the reasons that it's assumed that that may be a quote from them is because everything else he says from here on is that it is very good for a man to touch a woman within marriage. Paul knows the Bible and he's not reversing what God said in the garden. In the garden, God said that a man should leave his father and mother, that he should cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. This is very good. Paul is not in disagreement with Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5 says, rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. Paul's not embarrassed by that. Paul's not embarrassed by the Song of Solomon. So it doesn't seem that Paul is summarizing his entire position on marriage with this phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That it's possible he's quoting their letter. They said it's good for a man not to touch a woman and he's about to fix their bad ideas. That's one way to read it. On the other hand, an argument can be made that he's addressing directly those Jews who are insisting on marriage, teaching that without marriage, you can't be holy, that there's no possible way to please God as a single person. And Paul responds, it is good not to touch a woman. It can be good to be single. That is an acceptable state of life. You know, Jesus wasn't married during his earthly ministry. Paul wasn't presently married. And to say that it can be good to not be married doesn't necessarily mean that the opposite is also true. It does, if I say it, it's good not to be married, that doesn't mean it's bad to be married. That doesn't, that doesn't necessarily follow. Simply that in certain cases, in certain contexts, if you are able to endure singleness for the sake of the kingdom, it can be good not to marry. Just like I could say, well, it's good to be able to hold your breath. I mean, if you're ever in the, under the water and you need to hold your breath, it's, it's good. In that context, in that situation, it's good to hold your breath. That doesn't say, I'm, I'm not saying oxygen is bad. That's not what I'm saying, right? So that's another way uh, there, that, that we read it. And one argument for that is that from, we're going to stop at verse 7 today, but from there on, the rest of the chapter, he makes a lot of comments and a lot of encouragements regarding singleness, so those are two readings that I went back and forth with this week trying to figure out, well, uh, so I said, I'm just going to say both of them. And, and, and whichever you think is the more plausible reading, in either case, whichever way you read this, Paul is not elevating celibacy over marriage as the ideal for everybody everywhere. Because this is the same Paul that wrote the book of Ephesians and all the words of chapter five in Ephesians. So, so Paul's not writing a general position paper on marriage here. He's responding to a specific set of issues and questions that are posed by the Corinthians. So he sets up the topic and now he responds. Verse two, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, 
let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So the remedy for sexual immorality is not abstinence and celibacy, but that every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. Rather than indulging your sexual desires in idolatrous ways, have your wife, have your husband. Now, by have, he means more than simply acknowledge they exist. Do you have a wife? Yeah, I have a wife. I, I got, yeah, I got a husband. I got, a, I got this guy. I got him. It doesn't, that's not how he's using the word have. No, he means have, right? He means like we vow in our wedding vows to have and to hold. This means you cling to each other. You possess each other. You cover each other in your love. You turn all of your attention and affection to your spouse. You turn your wandering eyes and your wandering mind and your wandering imagination to the one that you're married to and be satisfied with her love or be satisfied with his love. The inclination of some Corinthians may have been this. Well, to avoid immorality, if you aren't married, don't get married. And if you are married, be celibate in marriage. And Paul says that's not an option. If you are married, you must not be celibate. Verse 3, he says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Both husband and wife are due affection. Husbands, your wives are due affection. Wives, your husbands are due affection. It is our duty to be affectionate with our spouses, to both give affection and to receive it. And this has to be clear. This has to be absolutely 100% uh, accepted and understood if we are to have a, a Christian sexual ethic. And it is this, all sexual activity is prohibited outside of marriage. Absolutely. It is forbidden, but it is required inside of marriage. Celibacy for the unmarried, yes, but celibacy is prohibited for the married. A man or a woman might say, well, you know, touch is not my love language. I just, I just, I'm not really good at receiving touch or giving touch, so, so I'm, I'm kind of off the hook, right? That's not really what I do, right? No, it's your duty if you're married to make it your love language. A, a man who doesn't know how to speak encouraging words or a man who doesn't like buying gifts for his wife or a man who doesn't want to serve his wife doesn't get off the hook because those aren't his love languages. He has to learn how to do it. And because physical affection has a component of both giving and receiving, both the one touching and the one being touched must be engaged. If either party, whether the man or the woman, goes catatonic every time they're touched, if they're, if they're as cold as an ice cube, there's no rest and there's no delight and there's no satisfaction in giving affection. Now see, this is not a one-sided activity in the scriptures. There's a mutuality in this verse. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And there's also probably an unspoken recognition there that wives and husbands require different kinds of affection. We look for different ways of, of showing affection, but there is a mutual sharing and receiving. Paul talks about the affection that 
is due to her. And this points to a mutual duty. So physical intimacy in marriage is not just a privilege. It is. It's not just pleasurable. It is. But it is a sacred, proper, obligatory responsibility to the other. We are required by God's word to give within marriage. We are required to give satisfaction to each other and to rest in each other's acceptance and love. And and this this is what the world twists and this is what it gets wrong. Promiscuity and fornication rip out the component of responsibility. But because husbands and wives are united as one flesh, there are manifold responsibilities to each other. We owe each other certain things. Love, honor, respect, protection, provision, submission. We owe these things to each other. And on that list is affection. I love the words of the uh, wedding ceremony from the old book of Common Prayer. And you might have used these in your wedding ceremony as well. The, the, The ring ceremony... Uh, says, with this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship. Now you think, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can say that. With my body I thee worship. Uh, turning into some kind of idolater, right? Is that what you're asking me to worship her? Worship him? No, 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 no. That's not what it means. It means I give everything to serve you. My body belongs to you. And that's supported by verse 4. Verse 4 says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this statement would have been incredibly shocking to this Greek and Roman audience. Greek and Roman marriages were more of a social arrangement. They weren't driven by love or affection. The husband had the power and the authority that all rested on him. And among the wealthy ruling classes, his relationship to his wife was either arranged or purchased for the sake of status or to advance his career or his political uh, uh, affluence. But uh, so, so in, this, in this society, men and women related to each other in marriage as a father and a daughter, as an uncle and a niece, but rarely, rarely as lovers because the man, he had other women that he could fool around with, and maybe other men too. It it just didn't matter. But his wife was not someone he would have thought of as someone he owed something to. And certainly no one in that day would say that his body belongs to his wife. That would be absolutely revolutionary for Paul to say this. But Paul states plainly here that there is a mutual sexual responsibility in marriage that levels the status of the partners. Women belong to their husbands and men belong to their wives, which means you are not your own. You are not your own. For both men and women, in your marriage vow, you give up the exclusive right to yourself. Now, there there are all kinds of bad ways that we mess this up. And there's no room here for the pagan view that women are property to keep locked up and the men can do whatever they please. No. How do we know that? Because both the man and woman belong to each other. There is a leveling here. So it's a lie to say that 
this is somehow misogynistic or hateful toward women. No, neither husband nor wife can engage in any activity outside of marriage because they don't belong to themselves anymore. Neither of them do, nor does this give a free pass to allow men and women to do whatever degrading or shameful thing to each other inside of marriage. They both have an equal responsibility to each other to honor the image of God in the other and to walk in holiness together before God. Uh, the pursuit of purity and holiness are always required in all things. Verse five, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do not deprive one another, he says. The word deprive is a pretty strong word. You could also translate it defraud. You could translate it cheat. When you fail to show affection or you fail to receive or refuse to receive affection, you are cheating your spouse of what is rightfully theirs. Because you are locked in covenant together, you can't decide for yourself, oh, this is no longer important to us. Oh, no, uh, we're, we're beyond that. This doesn't matter to us anymore. One person does not have the authority to decide that. In fact, the Bible says that's fraud. That's fraud. That's infidelity to the marriage covenant. People don't get married just so they can pick up somebody else's dirty laundry and pay the bills and, and, and live as these celibate roommates. That's not why you get married. You must give each other satisfaction in marriage. Paul says, do not withdraw from each other apart from a very specific set of conditions. And those conditions are not boredom. Those conditions are not resentment. Those conditions are not manipulation. If I withhold affection, maybe I'll get them to do this for me. The conditions are mutual consent for a limited time for the express purpose of giving yourself to prayer. These are the conditions. Mutual consent for a limited time for the express purpose of giving yourself to fasting and prayer. So let's pull those apart. You must both agree to fast in this way. The fast must have a definite endpoint and for the purpose of prayer. Why for the purpose of prayer? What, 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 there's something there. There's some significance and power to a godly, faithful couple joined together in fasting and prayer because it comes up again in Peter's epistle. First Peter 3 says, Husbands, likewise dwell with your wives in understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Isn't that interesting? There's something about living together in harmony in our complementary roles as men and women. There's something to that that enhances our prayer, that, that makes our prayers stronger and heard the way that a congregation praying together is more powerful and the way that, um, you know, the fasting and praying is powerful so that Men and women praying together in marriage is powerful. So there's, there's something about that. And there's this image here in 1 Corinthians 7 of a married couple knowing of a cause that's so urgent, uh, uh, some, something that needs prayer. It's so urgent that they hit pause on their rich, fulfilling love life together, which is so important that the only thing more important is to give that time and that energy to praying together. See, the only thing more important than cleaving to each other is prayer. 
Worship. There's only one relationship more important than your relationship to your spouse, is what it's saying. And that is your relationship to the Lord Jesus, is your relationship to God. The only thing more important than cleaving to each other is prayer. The only thing. Not your phone, not the kids, not the laundry, not the 11th inning, not double overtime, nothing. The only thing that is more important is prayer. And the only time you hit pause on regular, consistent marital intimacy is for mutual times of prayer. And you quickly come back together as, so as not to give room for Satan to tempt because temptations come from every angle. To be married and to abstain from marital relations is to invite all kinds of trouble. So you must regularly and consistently engage each other physically. Now you have to work out what regular and consistent means for your marriage. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus talks about, um, when he gives us bread and wine, he says, as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. We take the word often to mean every time we're together in covenant renewal worship, right? So every time we get together, every Lord's Day, when Jesus says do this often, we do it often. We do it every, every Lord's Day when we're together. And if we were to have a covenant renewal worship service on Wednesday night, we would have bread and wine there too, that, because that's what, that's what often means. Regular means regular. Often means often. Um, so you have to work out what that means for you and your marriage. But you, you trend toward often and regular and consistent. Now, in uh, something like 25 years of ministry, I have never had a single married couple at any time come to me and say, you know what? We've parked our love life for a short time to give ourselves to prayer and fasting. I've, I've never heard that. Never one time have I ever heard that. I've never heard any other pastor say, you'll never believe the conversation I had the other day. These people came to me and they said, yeah, we, we hit pause so that we could give ourselves to prayer and fasting. I've never heard that, never. Nevertheless, there's a whole lot of frigidity and there's mutual laziness and there's failure to initiate and there's a refusal to love each other this way in Christian marriages. And we set our spouses up for failure when we put them in a position to go looking other places for the affection and attention they have a right to find and expect in their own marriages. The only, the only holy and righteous outlet for sexual desire is marriage. That's the only outlet. There's no other option in the world that is righteous and holy and pleasing to God. A man must go to his wife to have his thirst quenched. And when he goes to her, she must be there for him. A woman must find in her husband, her warm companion, so that she isn't drawn away to look for another. And when she reaches out to him, he must respond. The only time we don't regularly, consistently touch each other was when it's mutually agreed upon for a limited time to give ourselves to prayer. Those are the boundaries that God's word sets. Now let's finish this section, verse six. But this I say is a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul wasn't married at this point when he writes all this, but he probably was married sometime before we meet him in the book of Acts. We don't know what happened to his wife. It's possible that she passed away, or maybe she left him when he became a Christian. But 
there's strong evidence to suggest that he had a wife. Why? Because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And you couldn't be a member of the Sanhedrin unless you were married. So because Jewish men were expected to be married and beget children, it, 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 uh, it's pretty obvious that Paul was probably, probably married. So when he writes this, don't read this as if this is a Paul who had no interest in being married and he, he you know, he he just had no interest in women and he couldn't understand all this silliness and he thought, well, this is just goofy stuff and if you have to, you know, whatever. No, he writes this as a man who was likely married before, but now at this point he has given up his right to be married for the good of the kingdom, to do the work that God has called him to do. This was treacherous work that God called him to do. And as he did it, he wouldn't have to worry about anybody's welfare but his own. He could sleep wherever he needed to sleep. He could eat wherever he could, eat whenever he could, whatever he had to eat. He could take whatever work he could find as he moved from town to town. But that's not for everybody. Only a small margin of people can live like that. However, Paul says, if you're one of those people, you're not sinning by remaining single. In fact, if you can remain single, you can then direct your energies to full-time kingdom work. But for those who haven't been gifted in that direction, who are not able to be content with singleness, they should not try to remain unmarried. So, so nothing Paul writes here are we to read begrudgingly or condescendingly as if he attained some high pure state of being single, but you know, since the rest of us down here can't control ourselves, we better get married before our lust drags us down to hell. That's not, that's not the message. That's the wrong way of reading this passage. Nothing he says here is con condescending to marriage, much the opposite. In every way, within marriage, it is very good for a man to touch a woman. It is very good for him to touch her and for her to receive his affection. And if that sounds odd to us, if that sounds like something that shouldn't be in the Bible, maybe it's something that, oh, I've never heard this in church before and it makes me really nervous. Why is that? Well, it's evident that we've been drinking out of the broken cisterns, the polluted toilet water of our society. We have bought into this image that sex is dirty and naughty and shameful, and you can really only enjoy it if you're really wicked and really nasty. Because of the fallenness and the brokenness and the confusion of our world, Christians develop all kinds of hang-ups and self-doubt and body image issues and all, these, all this baggage, and we bring this all into our marriages. But I want you to know, and I want you to hear it at least once in your lifetime, that we don't get these pathologies. We don't get this mess from the Bible. God's word is not written in such a way to make us feel weird or guilty or uncomfortable about this. Our hangups are the result of unhealthy, sinful, often Gnostic responses to the filth all around us, some of which we engage in. And what we have to do is recognize that it's sin, it's pollution. And our sinful responses to this are giving us grief and pain. It's, it's our sin that's giving us this grief and heartache, not God and not his word. Do not let the perverts ruin your marriage. Do not let them rob your marriage of the joy that God intends for you to have in your marriage. Don't let Satan put barriers between you and your spouse. Don't let former sin and former indiscretion and bad relationships in your past cast your identity in such a way that you're incapable of loving your spouse in the future. I keep going back to chapter six, uh, verse nine, 10, 11. 
I read it last week, and I'll probably read it 10 more times before we're done with Corinthians because it's so pivotal. Uh, he says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. There's a list of people here in, in verse 9 and 10. These people are in the church in Corinth. And it's not a stretch to assume that there are people on this list who are also some of the married people that he's addressing in chapter 7. And to these same people, he has this instruction. You came out of a mess when you came into the church, but God requires you to cleave to your wife and to render your husband the affection due him, despite this mess that you came out of. Some of you men and women in this congregation have really tough stories. Men and women have tough histories. Tragic things have happened to you in the way in your lives along the way. But the solution to overcoming the weight of other people's sins against you and the weight of your own sins, the solution is not celibacy in marriage. Sure, these things give you all kinds of things to work out and deal with before God and to figure out. And sometimes it takes a really long time to do all that. And you need a really, really patient spouse to help you work through that. I'm very sorry for the things that have happened to you but work it out. You say, well, I've got all this mess in my head and I got, a, I got things to work on. And I got things to work through. Okay, work it out. Work on them. What are you doing about it? I messed up and my parents messed me up and bad things happened to me. That's not a get out of responsibility card when it comes to your marriage. If you need help, get help. Don't, don't suffer in shame and silence and say, you know, I'm just, I, I just suffer. There are resources available to you. There are people who have been where you have been. There are people who have gone through what you've gone through. It's not the church that wants you to feel ashamed and dirty and awful. Not in the least. The Lord Jesus Christ does not want you to suffer in shame and silence. Who wants us to suffer that way? Well, Satan. He wants us all uptight and he wants us full of hangups and full of body issues and full of self-image conflicts. He wants us because he wants us to destroy marriage and destroy the church and destroy society. That's what he's after. And we let him when we don't do what God says. You and I, we are all, we are all refugees of the sexual revolution. We're all refugees from this society. And such were some of you. But What's the rest? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has a way of washing and cleansing and healing and restoring you and setting things right when you are pleasing to Him. You only add to the pain. You only multiply heartache when you break covenant and you aren't at all interested in pleasing the Lord. You want to get more messed up? You want to, you want to invite temptation into your marriage? Well, then refuse to cleave to your spouse. That's how you do that. Or you could understand that the antidote to lust and fornication and adultery, the antidote to all manner of perversion is for Christian wives and husbands to cleave to each other, to be in every possible way one flesh, to exercise this sacrament of marriage, this covenant renewal of marriage, to exercise it regularly and consistently. This is your sacred, proper, obligatory responsibility to each other which is also pleasurable and which is also a privilege. But you do not belong to yourself. 
You belong to your spouse if you are married. Give yourself to each other and build up your marriage before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask you to strengthen our marriages more and more. Strengthen our children growing up in this society where there's so much confusion and brokenness and heartache and perversion. Protect our children, we pray. Preserve them. Deliver them from temptation, we pray. And put them in delightful, happy marriages as husbands and wives. Give them uh, fruitfulness so that we can see many generations of people loving and serving you, doing what you say, following your design and your plan for their lives. Father, we confess that we are messed up. We are broken and confused. Heal us, Lord. Straighten us out by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.